let's give a Mission Point style welcome uh, to our friend here, Jason Johnson. Good morning, Mission Point. It's great to be here with you from Texas. Um, I appreciate you not um, you removing all the snow from the ground for me. It's, we at least have that, but it is super cold. Not sure how you crazy people do it. Maybe you're not even sure how you do it. You're like, I don't know. Don't like it. But here we are. I live in a small town outside of Houston, uh, and uh, it's so great to be with you here this morning. The best way for me to introduce myself to you is to show you a picture of the world I come from. So I will do that. This is the um, estrogen-filled, all-drama, all-the-time world that I live in with a little splash of testosterone there in the Santa hat Jordan. And so I'll explain a little bit of the context. My wife, Emily, back home with obviously a much harder job than I have. My job with you is super easy. She's back wrangling all this. And you all know, if you're parents, that there is something uniquely evil and demonic about getting kids ready for church on Sunday morning. I don't know what it is, but... Um, She's back home doing that with all that, and I'm here with you. And I haven't talked to her this morning. Uh, I um, haven't talked to them actually in quite a while, Uh, but I can guarantee you it's not going well right now. Trust me. I've seen it. I've been there. I've I've been shocked by the whole process and experience. It's not going well, so you can pray for Emily. We've been married 15 years. In the middle there is Macy, uh, and then in the pink is Darby, and turquoise is Presley, and then on the far, our far right is Marley, and it's in large part Marley's fault, and it's her story and our story together that I'm here with you this morning, and we'll share a little bit more about that as we continue on. And then over here on the far left uh, is the newest addition to our uh, um, crazy family. This is Guiana and her baby boy, Jordan. Uh, this was us at Christmas time, actually, and uh, Guiana came to live with us when she was 17 through the foster care system. She had just given birth to Jordan, and they needed a place to live, and she is now 18, almost 19, uh, and is an ongoing part of our family. It's kind of this ebb and flow of, of, of chaos only punctuated by moments of serenity and calm, and, um, and she's had a very, very hard life. And uh, we are committed now to ensure that uh, she, de- she doesn't have to do it all alone anymore. Um, and that's really been the story of her life since she was six years old growing up in the foster care system. Uh, and so um, it's not easy and it's not a fairy tale ending. There is no ending to this story. It's an ongoing uh, drama that is being played out in our home. Uh, but at the end of the day, we consider it as worth it. And we have assured her and Jordan that you are stuck with us forever, whether you like it or not. Um, and um, one day she will believe that because um, no one in her life has ever given her reason to believe that to be true. And so we continue to reinforce that into her. So this is our family. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to talk about God's invitation for us to step into some hard places and into the lives of some very broken people uh, right here in our own city and even around the world. But before we talk about what God is inviting us to do for others and expecting us to do for others, we are first going to spend most of our time actually talking about what God has done for us through Jesus. And so before we talk about our care of the vulnerable and our care of the orphaned, we are first going to talk about Jesus' care of us. Because that becomes the framework and the catalyst behind all of life. It's the launching pad. It's, it's, it's the grid through which all of our lives are now lived. 
We're going to talk about the gospel. And if you are a part of this church on a regular basis, I imagine just from what I know of Kondo that you hear the word gospel a lot. This is a gospel-saturated community. And that word gospel is a very simple word, actually. The definition of the word gospel is literally good news. That's what that word means, good news, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so we are going to talk about the good news of what Jesus has done for us, and then we are going to see how that becomes the framework and the catalyst and the foundation upon which, our, upon which we work on behalf of others. And some of you may have come into this room and, and, um, and you have already begun to hear these words orphaned and vulnerable and foster care and adoption. And maybe you've kind of already checked out, man, this isn't for me. We're not going to bring a kid into our home. We're, that's not our life stage. I'm a student or, or empty nester or older or, or whatever. This isn't for me. And so I want to kind of remove that from the table for you. Because what we're going to see at the end of this is that this is for everyone. This is a blanket that we throw out over this entire room under which no one can escape. And that's a good thing. And you're going to see that in the end. We're going to talk about the implications of the gospel for us in our lives. And then we're going to talk about the implications of the gospel through us into the lives of others. And everyone's got a role to play in that. So, The good news of the gospel is essentially this, that when Jesus steps into our story, everything changes. There's no part of who we are that goes untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus. It is good news that Jesus steps into our story and embraces all of it. God doesn't step into our story and then become aware of certain pieces of who we are and certain pieces of information or certain dark places that we think we've hidden. And God doesn't step in and go, oh, yeah, uh, never mind. No, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus steps into our story and wraps himself up in all of it and then begins to write an entirely new story for us. That's good news. That's hard news sometimes when God begins to invade some spaces that we prefer he just stay away from. But that's not good news if that's the kind of God that he is. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus steps into our story and everything begins to change. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 is one of my favorite places in a very short and succinct space in which the writer of scripture, in this case Paul, encapsulates the essence of what that looks like. The essence of what it means for Jesus to step into our story and literally change everything about it. So we're going to read through this passage, then we're going to pick it apart, look at what it means for each one of us, and then uh, get out of here and be first in line for lunch, wherever you're going. That's our goal. Ready? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. We'll begin in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So let's begin to pick that apart. Let's start in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, that phrase literally means at just the right time. So read it this way. At just the right time, God sent forth his son. That's very fancy language for saying Jesus was born. At just the right time, Jesus was born of a woman. We know that to be Mary. Born under the law. That phrase, under the law, literally means condemned to die. He was born under the weight of the law. He was born with the weight of the law on his shoulders, which equals condemnation. This is my favorite Christmas verse. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that I never hear preached at Christmas. So you've got 10 months to convince Kondo to preach this passage at Christmas. It's fantastic. 
Because here's what it says. At just the right time, Jesus was born of a woman. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But we kind of leave out at Christmas the, the rest of that verse, born condemned to die. That's not super like wise men, angel, you know, like a nativity scene. You know, we don't like that. We save that for Easter, but it's true at Christmas. At just the right time, Jesus was born condemned to die. That's why he came. That was his redemptive mission. I have come to ultimately die on the cross to save humanity. That's the mission of Jesus. Here's what this passage tells us about God. It says so much to us about who God is and what God does. It says that at just the right time, God looked down on humanity. Put yourself in the mindset of Christmas. Here's what we celebrate. He looked down on all of humanity. He saw darkness and despair and brokenness, and he stepped into it. It says to us that God is the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people, and he moves towards them and not away from them. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God looked down on our plight and our brokenness, and he stepped out of his glory and into the brokenness of our humanity. He wrapped himself up in it. If you were in a seminary class right now, the professor would say, this is the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation, that God took on flesh and wrapped himself up in humanity. The way in my, my simple mind makes sense of these complex doctrines um, uh, is interesting. The doctrine of incarnation for me um, makes most sense um, in the framework of Tex-Mex food, okay? I'm a Texas boy. We've got this thing called Tex-Mex. It's like this unique flair of Mexican and Texas, right? Uh, and so chili con carne at a Tex-Mex restaurant is what? It's chili con carne with meat. That's what that means. It's incarnate. It's, it's, it's God con carne. It's incarnation. It's God with meat on, right? You are never going to eat chili con carne the same. You're, next time you order it, you're going to be with friends. You're going to take a bite and say, you know what this reminds me of? This deep, beautiful theological doctrine of the end. They're going to what? what are you talking about, man, right? This is God with meat on. That God would step into our humanity, wrap himself up in it, and ultimately be broken by it. So in the gospel, God says, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. He steps into our brokenness, wraps himself up in our brokenness, carries our brokenness to the cross, is broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to be broken anymore. That's the good news of the gospel. That God says, I see you where you are, and I am coming after you. And when God says, I'm coming after you, you better believe God's going to get you. God's going to get you. And he has proven the lengths that he's willing to go in order to get you by the cross. That's how far he's willing to go to get you. Now, this flies in the face. This flies in the face of, of what we understand to be the religious message of God, which is an entirely different deal that God makes with us. See, in the gospel, here's God's deal. I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. I'm going to step into your brokenness, wrap myself up in it, and we're going to begin to write an entirely new story. But in religion, God makes a very different deal with you. God says, I see you where you are, now you need to work your way to where I am. And that is not good news at all. That is incredibly frustrating. It's impossible for us. It reminds me of this 15-year-long conversation my wife and I have going on in our marriage. If you're married, you have these conversations. They're not fights. They are just principled discussions where you are going to agree to disagree literally until death do you part, right? 
We're going to be stubborn and principled and resolute and agree to disagree. Our discussion in this particular instance revolves around an appliance that probably all of us have in our home. It's an appliance with a very, very simple name. It could not be more clear of what this appliance claims to do. It calls itself a dishwasher, okay? Hey, what's that big box? It's a dishwasher. What does it do? Well, it's, it, it washes dishes, supposedly, right? And here's why I say that. There's a disclaimer to that because, guys, I don't know about you, but I never seem to wash the dishes off well enough before I put them in the washer of dishes, which we bought and we paid for to do a job that it is not capable of doing. I don't appreciate it. It's lying to us. It's just taking up space. I'm not the dishwasher. You're the dishwasher, right? So maybe it's less of a conversation between my wife and I, and it's more a conversation between me and this electronic device, this box in our home, right? It claims to be able to do something it's not able to do. I also never seem to load the dishwasher correctly. That's a whole different discussion, right? Uh, which there's not, that's marriage therapy 101. Or on the rare occasion, if you're like us, we don't have cleaning people come super often to our house until we've just lived like savages for too long and we need somebody to come and rescue us, right? So my wife says, hey, the cleaning ladies are coming tomorrow. Guys, what do you have to do tonight? You got to clean the house <laughs> before the cleaning ladies come. <laughs> Absolutely not. No way. They're earning every penny I pay them tomorrow. As a matter of fact, we're going to take all the cereal boxes out and just leave crushed Cheerios everywhere tonight. We're eating off the, the coffee table. They're going to earn it all tomorrow. We can live like total animals because rescue is coming, okay? Logically, it just does not make sense. I have to clean the dishes. I have to wash the dishes before I put them in the thing that is called the dishwasher. I have to clean the house before the clean. This is the logic of religion that leaves people frustrated and disillusioned with God. You're telling me I've got to clean myself up enough before I can actually finally come to the only one that can clean me up? Man, that sounds off. That's not a good deal at all. That's not good news. You're right, it's not. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus says, I see you where you are. I'm coming after you. And everything is about to change. And so Paul begins to unpack that in verse 5. Jesus does this, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul begins to speak to our past who were under the law. Remember what that phrase means? Condemned to die. So Jesus was born condemned to die to redeem or to rescue those who were condemned to die. That's you and I. That outside of Jesus in our past condition, our relationship with God was marked by odds and enmity. There was separation between us. We were condemned under the weight of a law we could not live up to, and that's exactly where Jesus met us. He said, I see you where you are. I'm coming after you, and I'm going to meet you exactly where you are. I'm coming to you. I'm going to remove from you the burden of the weight of that law, place it on me, allow it to crush me so that you don't have to be crushed anymore. You are now set free from that condemnation and introduced into a new family through adoption of sons and daughters into the family of God. Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we have been set free. Here's what that means. Our past have been redeemed. When Jesus steps into our story, our past are redeemed. So here's what that means. You and I now, through the scandalous nature of grace and the unique power of grace, can look back on our past and it is no longer a source of condemnation for us. It is now a platform of celebration for us. How is that? 
Because I can look back on my past and say, wow, look at what Jesus has done. My past doesn't drag me down into despair. It actually draws me out and pushes me forward more towards him. Look at what he's done. Our past have been redeemed. Jesus steps into our story and redeems us out of our past. You no longer live in the broken context that you once used to be stuck in. Jesus has decisively dealt with that. Paul continues in verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Paul now speaks to our present reality. Your past has been decisively dealt with, and your present reality has now been shifted. Everything now, right now, in this room, today in Jesus, is different. Paul says that the Spirit has has filled you to the degree that you can refer to God as Abba, Father. That's a, a little bit of a redundancy. The word Abba is almost the same word as Father, but it has a slightly different connotation. It has a very intimate and affectionate tone to it. So our modern translation of that word Abba might be the word Daddy. So Paul is essentially saying the Spirit of God has now indwelt you in your new present reality and has given you the capacity to refer to God as Daddy Father. Okay, so this is the difference between my girls uh, coming and saying, uh, Father, we'd like some ice cream tonight, please. And I'd say, creepy, don't talk to me like that. Super British, right? Proper, right? No. Instead, it's daddy. That's who I am to them. I'm daddy. And as long as I can keep them saying that word, I'm going to hold on to it. Even if they're like 34 and it's awkward. I want to be daddy. Now, that doesn't make me any less father. I am father. And in a few years, when those boys start hanging around our house, everybody's going to know who Father is, right? (laughs) But right now, what's more important for me, for my girls to understand about me, is that I'm Daddy. Same guy, completely different posture, completely different connotation. It's one that denotes intimacy and affection and approachability, safety and security. I want my daughters to know right now especially as they get older and our 12-year-old preteen, wow, right? Where did she go? Our old daughter's gone. But here's what I want her to know. You can talk to daddy about anything, anything, and always with confidence and security know how I'm going to respond to you with intimacy and affection and love. The day that she shares something deep and dark with me, and I respond in a way that pushes her away and isolates, that's done. No longer will she come to me. Here's the security and the confidence that we now have through Jesus in our relationship with God. I can bring anything to him, and I know exactly how he's going to respond to me. Never pushing me away, always pulling me in, because that's what a good daddy does. Here's what it means. I now live today with the assurance of knowing exactly how he feels about me. He's not angry with me. He's not disappointed in me. He's not embarrassed by me. All of that stuff has already been poured out on the back of Jesus. It's been dealt with. And now I can come to him as my daddy. My past has been redeemed. My present reality has been shifted, now marked by intimacy and affection and love. And then Paul continues in verse 7. 
He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir through God. And so an heir is, is future language. We all know what an heir is. It's someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. So our past has been redeemed. Our present reality has been shifted. And the future trajectory of our lives has been altered literally for all eternity. Over and over and over in Scripture, when you read about what's to come in the future in Christ, you get a couple of, of consistent messages. The first and, pro- and most prominent message is this, that glory is coming. Almost every time you read about what's to come in the future, you're going to see somewhere in the context of the Scripture the word glory. So it says, while our outward bodies waste away, our inward souls long for the glory that will be revealed. It says that while our present struggles have a certain weight to them that are real and raw and heavy, the weight of glory that will be revealed through them far surpasses the weight of our current struggles. That glory is coming. That there is a future hope that we can look forward to that will ultimately be our inheritance. And so the constant message number one of what's to come in the future is glory. And then the second consistent message in Scripture about what's to come to in the future is this. The glory's coming, but it's going to be a little rough getting there. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's going to be hard, actually. It's going to be increasingly difficult. And we are constantly reminded of that in our world, in our news, that it is hard and things are broken, but glory is coming. That is our hope, that in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. Not in some coffee cup Christianity kind of bumper sticker Christianity kind of way, but like in a real soul-stirring, gut-wrenching, I have to believe that Jesus wins over all of this or I just cannot fall asleep at night kind of way. See, our message, our our world is filled with the message of fear. 24-hour news stations, political arenas, economic arenas, medical arenas, everywhere we turn, we are constantly being told of all the things that we need to be afraid of. Politicians say, to a certain degree, you need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't elect me. And now you need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't vote for this, pass this, support this, get behind this. Just be afraid. Hollywood gives us apocalyptic movies, cable TV shows, what happens if a virus wipes out part of humanity, a lot of them turn into zombies, and the rest of them turn into like these Rick Grimes guys, right? Like, you need to be afraid of what's going to happen, okay? The economy takes a downward turn, buy your gold, buy, buy your gold bars, buy, you know, get your reverse mortgage, buy your beans, you're going to be eaten out of the gutter next week if you don't. You need to be afraid. It's all falling apart. Some kid gets a virus in North Dakota, and you're like, wow, people live in North Dakota. That's weird. I didn't know that. But, but what do I need to be afraid of now? Well, you need to be afraid because this is the new virus. It's going to wipe out all of humanity. It's the next swine flu. So vaccinate your kids. Wait, don't do that. You should be afraid of that. Don't vaccinate your kids. Wait, you're not vaccinating your kids? You should be afraid of that, right? Well, dang, what do I do then, right? Just be afraid of kids, vaccines, everything, okay? <laughs> be paralyzed by fear in all matters of life. And then tune in later to your 24-hour news station tonight, and we'll tell you more that you need to be afraid of. That is the consistent, constant message of the world that we live in. But I'm here to tell you this morning that in Jesus, we live today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. Glory is coming. Jesus wins over all of it. We don't have to be afraid. It doesn't mean we don't have to be wise. It doesn't mean we don't have to be discerning. But it absolutely means 
that we can sit on the sidelines of our kids' sporting events. We can sit in our cubicle at work. We can sit in our classroom at school surrounded by people who are afraid. And we don't have to be afraid. And they need to see us not afraid. They need to ask us why we're not afraid. And we need to tell them why we're not afraid. Because we believe in the end Jesus wins. Not in a coffee cup Christianity kind of way. But in a real soul-stirring, gut-wrenching kind of way. Jesus wins. That is our only future hope. So now here we are. Jesus steps into our story, says, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you, and everything changes past, present, and future. You no longer live in your past broken context. Your present reality is now marked by security and affection, and there is a hope for your future that you would have never been able to dream of before. Everything has changed. So God's invitation to us to step into the lives of the most vulnerable and marginalized around us is predicated on the fact that that's exactly what he has done for us. See, the parallels between the gospel in us and the gospel through us are beautiful and unending. Here's what you and I are being given the invitation to do, is to look around, look around us, to see the most vulnerable, to see the most isolated, to see the orphaned and the broken, and to say, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. This flies in the face of the narrative of the world that we are all predisposed to ascribe to, which says when you see hard and broken things, you should avoid, isolate, and insulate. Do everything that you possibly can to set up a life around yourself where you can pretend like hard and broken things don't exist. And then the gospel comes in and flips the script And says, no, 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 no. We now become a people. In light of what Jesus has done for us, we now become a people who say, I see you where you are, and I'm stepping towards you. And we're going to begin to write an entirely new story together. You don't have to live in the context of brokenness. You can now live with a present security and have a vision and a hope for the future that you would have never been able to dream of before. So let's begin to write an entirely new story together. This becomes the essence of James chapter 127, which is, is, is kind of our preeminent and, and pinnacle verse on God's heart for the marginalized and the orphan. But it, it doesn't necessarily say everything that we think it says. And so let's pick it apart a little bit. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, as undefiled, before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So let's pick this apart. Here's a 30-second seminary class. Ready? Here's what we do in seminary. We pick things apart and dissect them. That word religion does not mean what we think it means today. It's a different word, religion. It means an outward display of something that's inwardly true. That's what we're talking about. An outward display of the gospel, which is inwardly true in us. One of the purest and most undefiled, vivid, clear, tangible, rich, outward displays of the gospel is to visit or to move, step towards, get involved with orphans and widows or the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society. Orphans and widows is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Here's what that means. We can't go to James and say, James, we noticed that you didn't mention homeless people. And James would, would, would go, yeah, I don't care about them, ignore them. No, of course not. 
We'd say, James, you didn't mention victims of sex trafficking or those living in, in, in abject poverty. And I don't think he'd say, I don't care about them. Stop asking me about them. It's orphans and widows or bust, right? No, of course not. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. He's using them as a description of the most vulnerable around us. So here's what he's saying. One of the purest and most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel is to see hard places in broken people and to move towards them, not away from them. Because in light of what Jesus has done, how can we not? It is unbelievably difficult for us. Or maybe it's just too easy for us. I haven't quite figured it out yet. To celebrate a God who says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. But then in our own lives, avoid, isolate, and insulate. There's a, a, just an unbelievable breakdown in there for many of us. And what Jesus is saying is, look, everything begins to change now. In light of your deep uh, understanding of what Jesus has done for you, it begins to change your posture and your approach towards them. One of the most purest and undefiled reflections, demonstrations of the gospel is to see hard and broken places and move towards them, not away from them. Here's the cool thing about the uniqueness of the diversity of the body of Christ, though, is that we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all certainly capable of doing something. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. Here's what that means, that we all celebrate the same gospel, but we all don't demonstrate that gospel in the same way. Scripture says that some of us are eyes and ears and hands and feet. We are unique pieces of a body coming together, not in, in uniformity, where we all have to look the same, act the same, talk the same, but in unity, diversity coming together in unity for the good of the whole. Romans 12 says, as in one body, we have many members. The members don't all have the same function. Though, though we are one body in Christ, we are individually members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so let us use them. We have gifts that differ. Here's what that means. It means that some of you need to open your home to kids. You just need to do it. And maybe you're even at the point where you need to stop praying about it and asking God about it and talking about it and reading about it and praying about it more. And you just need to do it. Like God's up there going, hey, stop asking me about this. I've already made it clear. And some of you, the last thing that you need to do is bring kids into your home. Like, please do them a favor and don't bring them into your home, right? You can barely feed yourself and tie your own shoes. Like, ask your buddy, hey, is he talking about me? Should I bring a kid into my home? Hopefully you have good enough friends that say, dude, don't do it, right? Please don't do it. Maybe you're in a life stage where you just can't. But that doesn't mean that there's not a significant place for you. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so let us use them. That means that the opportunities to get involved right here in this room this morning are as unique and diverse as each individual person in this room. So here's what it can look like. It can look like a family bringing children into their home and then a bunch of other people wrapping around them and supporting them. I recently met a guy in Kansas City. He owns a barbecue restaurant. He was catering for his church, a foster parent dinner, honoring them. He came up to me after and said, hey, we're in our late 60s. We're not in a position to bring kids into our home, but I own the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City. And we've told our church, anytime there's a foster care function, we are going to cater the function for free. And anytime a new child is placed into a home, we're going to deliver from our restaurant their first meal to them. Here's a guy that says, I know what I can't do, but I know what I can do, and I do that really well. And so I'm going to use that in this space for the good of the whole. 
I know of a mechanic in my town that one Saturday a month on his marquee, he puts a sign that says free oil changes for single moms and foster parents. He's using what God has given him in a creative way for the good of the whole. And so my question to you this morning is this, what's your something? What is your pure and undefiled reflection of the gospel? Because everybody in this room has one. Let me end with this. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological father. I learned in a family meeting between my mom, my dad, my older sister, and I that the first two years of my life were marked by vices at the hands of a biological father that you named the vice and he excelled at it. It ultimately left my mom to be alone with the very broken story and, and two super cute pieces of baggage to go along with it, my six-year-old sister and two-year-old me, the cuter of the two uh, pieces. She strolls into a church in Dallas one Sunday, sees a young worship leader up on stage. They develop a friendship, a relationship, eventually fall in love. At the age of 23 years old, this man would get down on his knee and ask to take the hand of my 32-year-old mom in marriage, 23-year-old kid, and essentially says to her, I, I know your story. <clears throat> I love you because of your story. Let's begin to write an entirely new story together. Turns to at, and asks to take the hand of my sister to become his daughter and asked to take my hand to become his son. He would marry my mom. He would adopt my sister and I and change my first, middle, and last name. Completely new birth certificate. The old is gone. The new has come. A new present reality and a future trajectory that I'm convinced uh, is, is, it's impossible for me to count, to count the ways my future has been different on this side of eternity. Because at just the right time, this man said, I see you where you are. I'm coming after you, and we're going to begin to write a new story together. On April 25, 2012, my wife and I uh, had our first placement in foster care in the city of Houston. A three-day-old baby girl was brought to our home. She was play yeah, there she is, and now you're not listening to me anymore because she's super cute. So let's put it back on the picture of the ugly guys so that they'll, uh, they'll listen to me. Uh, three-day-old baby girl is brought into our home and placed in our arms, and she ruins everything about our lives in that moment. And here's why. Because it's impossible to hold tragic brokenness in your arms and not have your comfort completely dismantled by it. The weight of their brokenness breaks you. She's never left our home. She's since become our daughter. We've adopted her, changed her first, middle, and last name. So she and I have a lot of birth certificates and a whole lot of names. And when she's a little older, she's almost there, we'll sit down and we'll probably have some kind of a Shopkins tea party and we'll talk about birth certificates and names and how Marley and Daddy are the same like that. There hasn't been a day that's gone by since she's been in our home that we haven't considered on some level, what would her life look like? Where would she be? What would she be doing? Had we not been given the privilege to become a part of her story and her a part of ours and us to begin to write an entirely new story together. And so I leave you with this thought. Where would you be right now had Jesus not, at just the right time, said, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you? And in that moment, begin to change everything for you. Ask yourself, where would I be right now had Jesus not? And I'm convinced that your answer to that question becomes the framework and the catalyst and the grid upon which God is inviting you to do for others what he has so wonderfully and beautifully and sacrificially done for you. So let me pray. Father, we do ask for your wisdom.
and your clarity to make decisions in light of the goodness of you towards us in Jesus that would most purely and in an undefiled, brilliant, and beautiful, and vivid way put the good news of the gospel on display. May we continue to be a people that see hard and broken places and step towards them and not away from them. So give us clarity and wisdom, Father, on what our something in that might be. It's in your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.